0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to the WRSU crew. I'm Arielle Duncan, and today we have special guest Nancy Hogshead Makar. The Global Sports and Business Master's program of Rutgers University is honored to have an exceptionally brilliant faculty among the star studded staff. And joining our broadcast today is three time Team USA. Olympic gold medalist and four-time Olympic medalist in women's swimming Nancy Hogshead McCar is on the GSB team here at Rutgers and as part of the Rutgers community, she serves as a leader and professor inside the studies of sport business. She teaches the course sports administration in the fall, covering all sorts of topics aligned within her expertise and extensive professional career outside of the pool. And inside the classroom, she talks about topics ranging from traditional Title IX compliance, sexual harassment, abuse, and assault, as well as employment, pregnancy, and LGBTQ community discrimination within sport. And I can't forget to mention equal pay. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you?
1: I'm good, Ariel Duncan.
0: What are your thoughts about this Olympic and Paralympic games?
1: Oh, it's going to be a games like none other since with the pandemic and all these athletes had to wait an extra year. And, um, you know, but I, I still think that the athletes are going to rise. They're going to be amazing performances. We won't get to see them live, but even on TV, they're they're still going to be inspiring.
0: That's right. I couldn't agree more. I'm wondering if you could share with us some of your most memorable experiences at the olympics
1: my most memorable experiences well i would say one of the most um incredible moments that you can't predict or expect was um i was part of the 1980 olympic team that boycotted the olympics so these athletes had to wait one year before they could compete again i had to wait four years before i could uh compete in an olympics again and There was a moment when we had already gotten all of our gear. And so we had like seven suitcases. Typically athletes are pretty babies about not carrying suitcases. You know, like my mom used to say, you are so strong and it is so worthless. (laughs) Like I'm saving for the pool. And we got through security and we were inside the Olympic village and everybody put all their luggage sort of on the ground and we just started dancing all around our luggage, like, oh my gosh, we're here. We actually made it. We are at the Olympic games. We have, most of us been training a decade for this moment. And it was just this sense of jubilation that I'll never forget.
0: Such an atmosphere, you know, I could only imagine. Yeah.
1: Once the games get underway, we'll have a lot more people being supportive of it. One thing that's that's hard about this particular Olympics is without having it be this huge international event of people coming together from all over the world. Typically, it is the most diverse group that I have ever that I'm ever a part of. So there are people in traditional dress <clears throat> from all over the world. Um, it doesn't matter where the games are held. This is a profoundly international event, and this is true for. The very first uh, prelim events all the way until you get to the finals. And um, so without that here, that may have a different impact on it. The the Japanese people have already paid a lot of taxes Mm -hmm. to be able to have the games. So in order to recoup as much money of that as possible, you know, they would need to be able to put on the games. You know, I just hope they're going to do it in a safe way as possible.
0: Outside the classroom, Nancy's runs a non organization called Champion Women.
1: I recognize that schools provide athletes with a lot of protection. We still see a lot of sexual abuse. You know, a, a swimmer, their coach is overseen by an athletic director, by the president of the university, by Title IX. Mm-hmm. They'll have a Title IX office. They have a general counsel position. They have insurance. So, so all of those things together mean that uh, we do a lot to protect athletes who are in a school-type system. Mm-hmm. Athletes who, contrary, are in a club or Olympic sport movement have none of those. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes the coaches at the top of, a, of the pyramid. They don't have anybody over them to oversee their behavior. And we, we live in a world that expects obedience and compliance from athletes, and, and expect them to trust their coach. And uh, there is this other element where an athlete can't get it. They can't win without a good coach, without you know, somebody showing them skills and knows how to train, et cetera. So um, you've got this symbiotic relationship. It puts club and Olympic sports athlete in a really perilous position, the Olympic Committee. And all the sports governing bodies, like USA Swimming, Track and Field, Taekwondo, et cetera, right? All the 50 different sports under the Olympic movement mm-hmm. didn't didn't want to be responsible for abuse. So they knew they had coaches that were sexually abusing athletes. And um, and and frankly, I, I don't know how successful that champion women would have been able to be, except for Larry Nassar. And when Larry Nassar happened, everything that I was talking about sort of came to fruition. The only difference with Larry Nassar versus all all these other stories, thousands literally of other examples was scale. So Larry Nassar, we know that he had at least 500 victims that have come forward and said that they were abused by, by him, by Larry Nassar. It was that scale that allowed for these amazing changes to happen. So we've had two pieces of federal legislation that clearly say now that the Olympic Committee and all the sports governing bodies, that is a sport that is not associated with school, absolutely has the duty to protect athletes from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse.
0: For our, all of our listeners tuning in right now, we are joined with Nancy Hogshead, McCarr, professor here at Rutgers University inside the Global Sports Business Program. And we're referring to Larry Nasser, the former doctor uh, examiner who was a part of Team USA Gymnastics.
1: To be clear, we had been working on it since 2010, Mm -hmm. but what jolted it forward was all of these amazing survivors Mm -hmm. who were not afraid, had no shame at all about fingering Larry Nassar as being the abuser, it's about how do you, how do you uh, change a system that enables this abuser to be able to molest over and over and over again, right? That, mm-hmm. That's the key, is the system change, not just getting individual coaches out. Mm-hmm. So the survivors sued Michigan State, where that's where Larry Nassar was employed, and they because of their insurance because of uh they have a legal duty to protect these athletes because people had been coming forward earlier and they didn't do anything about him they uh they had a settlement that was the equivalent of half a billion dollars against mm-hmm. Michigan state mm-hmm. however the olympic committee uh usa gymnastics went into bankruptcy court in bankruptcy court you're not figuring out who what where when like how did Larry Nasser happen? how is he able to continue to abuse girls and it, instead it focuses on how many assets does the organization, the corporation have how many liabilities how can you reconcile these two right So it has nothing to do with writing the wrong of what happened and everything to do just it's just money it's just right and that's exactly what the survivors don't want. So no, I mean, Simone Biles is going into the Olympics and she's dependent on USA Gymnastics and they have not reformed in any meaningful way that she would want um, to to prevent the next Larry Nassar from being able to happen. I was an expert retained in the case to offer insight to the jury, but it hasn't gone in front of a jury, right? Mm -hmm. Because they went into this bankruptcy instead of you know figuring out you know in what ways was the olympic movement responsible for having so many gymnasts abused
0: let's talk about the bill Statute 2330 empowering yes. olympic paralympic and amateur athletes act of 2020 it's now officially law to my understanding passed the senate unanimously in august and then passed the house in october Uh, when we had class together at the time. And I recall the the excitement and the jubilation uh, that was happening in the air um, just to really rejoice about this victory. And that's where I last left off in the progression. So tell me, which president signed this bill?
1: (laughs) President Trump signed the bill. The two two sides, I should say, the House and the Senate had to reconcile and uh, get the bill signed, and then it went to President Trump. Um, So it it did pass. Um, Part of the bill calls for a 16-person commission that will look at the Olympic Committee, look at the past and uh, see what can be done for the future. And I got named onto that commission. So um, Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington State appointed me. Thank you, Senator Cantwell. And um, and I'm looking forward to us being able to dig in and do our work. It'll be about a year's worth of work.
0: Wow. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. It's still not done after mm-hmm. all this time, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: Steps in the right direction. And I'm hope, hoping that, you know, with these efforts and with this bill now becoming law, that it can also continue to back and support Team USA Gymnastics.
1: Yeah, I would hope that um, some of the things that we that we uh, addressed in this new, the second bill, mm-hmm. one just talks about empowering Olympians, Paralympians, and amateur athletes. I don't know why they call it amateur athletes. There's no such thing as an amateur athlete in the Olympic movement. The word amateur was gone in 1992, but it does a number of things, one of which is it gives athletes more voting power mm. and requires athletes to be part of of the organizational work. So when, when issues like... Um, Athletes getting maternity care paid for by their health insurance that comes from the Olympic movement. Athletes getting, you know, uh, whatever medical waivers or whatever issue comes up. In the past, athletes really had no real say. Now they have 33% of all boards and committees to determine like where that next dollar comes in. So. The amount of money that's coming into the Olympic movement has quadrupled in the last just, you know, 10 years. And yet, the experience of the athletes has changed almost not at all. Most athletes depend on either college or uh, resources from their parents to be able to get them to the Olympics.
0: It takes a lot to do this kind of work, right? I, I would assume it takes a lot of resources.
1: Yep. There's still more that needs to be done, but I'm really proud of where we've come so far
0: your support your your advocacy for the lgbtqia plus community in sport where are you in your process um with trying to help the trans community gain equality
1: well yeah i mean first of all i'd like to say i've been involved in lots of litigation that has to do with gay and lesbian athletes who wanted to play sports as out and so we were very supportive of of their cases of them being able to be out and recognizing them uh, that was not a part of themselves that they had to hide. We recently joined a group together, we call ourselves the Women's Sports Policy Working Group. And um, right now the narrative is that you're either for inclusion or exclusion. So what we're looking at is We want to find a way to do two things at the same time, the best that we possibly can. One is to enforce the boundaries of the girls and women's category. The girls and women's category is no different from the 120-pound weight class, from different equipment classes that people have, from age group classes, even national classes. But at the same time, figure out how can we best include trans athletes in ways that are still fair. So trans athletes are not a monolith. Um, some trans athletes never go through male puberty. So there's a medical condition uh, called being testosterone resistant. So somebody's XY chromosome, that's male, and they have testosterone in the male range, which is way different than the female range. And that testosterone is bioavailable, meaning it can androgenize, it can give somebody male characteristics. So, uh, but, but somebody who that third one doesn't have the ability to androgenize, they should be included in the girls and women's category, even though they're probably taller than uh, the average woman. Um, And uh, so then, so that's one group, people who have not been through male puberty. Uh, And there are some people who start puberty blockers and they go on medication prior to puberty. Then there's another group, they go through male puberty and then they do things to mitigate that sex length advantage the difference between male and female so they roll back so they're on hormone blockers and they um, they're on uh, gender affirming hormones okay some of them even go through surgery all right so there's that, there's that group and we say if you can show that you can mitigate your sex length advantage there's no reason not to welcome them into the girls and women's category the kind of the gray line is how, how do you do that? And that's very different for different sports. Then there's a third category, people who say, I identify as female, I identify as a woman, but I don't wanna change my body. And I still wanna compete uh, in the girls and women's category. And we say we need to find other ways to have them be included, but no head-to-head competition biologically. The science of what does male puberty give a body, it's a lot. Okay, so male puberty gives somebody between eight and twenty percent advantage over competitors. So an amazing athlete like Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps, the advantage he had over his competitors was between 0.02 and Mm 0.2. How much of an advantage did Michael Phelps have over women? Was 14%. Mm -hmm. So you're going from 0.2 to 14%, right? In, if if we didn't have the women's category, just like, you know, if we didn't have the 120 pound weight class, you wouldn't see very many people, you wouldn't see very many women on the podium at all. Um, You wouldn't see very many 120 pound, um, let's say wrestlers on the podium at all, right? You have those classes for a particular reason. Yeah. So does that make sense? Three categories, and mm-hmm. we're looking for ways on how do we include while still respecting the boundaries of the category. Yeah, it's a lot of science, a lot of policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Women's Sports Policy Group, we have um, we have both the science type people, and we have the elite athlete type people. Um, but people who've been involved in women's sports governance forever. (laughs) So it's Donna Deverona, who was my mentor when I was growing up in my 20s and 30s. Donna Deverona, Martina Navratilova, Donna Lopiano. Um, She's another, uh, both she and I have won the International Olympic Committee's Woman of the Year Award. Um, And uh, Tracy Sundlin, who runs track and fields, Uh, interscholastic nationals Mm -hmm. so those are the best high school athletes in the country um and dorianne coleman dorianne was part of a legal team that was supportive of the iaaf rules when it came to intersex athletes how do we how do we best protect the girls and women's category when some people have the male sex length advantage who are women it doesn't matter in employment it doesn't matter in marriage or housing or adoption or banking or uh public accommodations none of those things does biology of sex make any difference whatsoever in sport it really does it makes a huge enormous difference
0: i couldn't agree more thank you for sharing that with us (laughs) yeah you're welcome you're such an accomplished woman a living legend May I ask you, what is your motivation to continue working in sport law and sport business?
1: I owe a lot to my sports experience. I really got so much out of it. And I want to make sure that, the, that there's more good parts. I hope people will go on to our website, championwomen.org, and uh, check out. Um, we, we look at every single school in the country and how they're discriminating against women or not. So I was really lucky that um, I I hit the age group just right to be able to get that college scholarship. Um, I was really lucky in that sports was a very healing event from sexual assault. I was not abused by my coach, but I had a coach who was uh, a serial sexual abuser, was abusing my teammate at the time. So I want to make sport better, and I want to make sure more women have opportunities to be able to do it so, you know, I feel like I owe a lot to the generation that came before me that made sure that there were opportunities and uh, I'm part of an amazing worldwide network that is doing the same thing of making sure that sport is safe, that people have opportunities to be able to do it and that it is affirming for the person as a whole. This whole idea of having to be obedient and compliant really takes agency decision-making away from the athlete Uh, we need to give that back to the athlete I'm thrilled with the new name image and likeness rules that are allowing college athletes to be able to take advantage of those Um, and look forward to seeing where it all goes that's my motivation
0: Professor Nancy Hogshead Makar, thank you so much for joining our Rutgers Radio broadcast and enlightening me and our listeners with all of this information. Thank you, Professor Nancy. Thank you, Ariel Duncan.